Welcome back to another episode of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. Long time no see, Courtney Nguyen. It's been weird, Ben Rothenberg. We haven't done a show in like an actual live normal show in like over a month, I think. So it's definitely quite, over a month. Quite yeah. overdue. It is. It definitely is. And you know, it's like I think I sent this tweet out, and I think I do every single time I do travel for an extended period amount of time outside of the states. Never ever take for granted reliable, fast Wi-Fi. It's not easy in the world. It's not easy. It's not. It doesn't matter what country you're in. It's just, it's never easy. I don't know what that is. As Lily Allen says, it's hard out here. Start out here for a tennis writer. It is. It pretty <laughs> much is. Not that people don't call us that other thing also. Oh, all the time. The all the time. Affectionately and non. How about half and half? <laughs> so on this show, we're going to catch up on a lot of stuff we missed all the way back, starting in Beijing and Shanghai, going all the way through Istanbul, Paris, London, all that jazz and more, and talk about the big players and the big stories and you ready to get rolling, Courtney? ready to roll we got a lot on our plate we do I mean, i'm always happy to clean off a full plate it's true and then some and then some let's start with the men because they wrapped up more recently and actually they're still going technically uh, we're recording this a few days after london ended after novak djokovic won london and he's going to be playing the davis cup final uh, next weekend which has not gotten a whole lot of buzz i must say as Davis Cup finals tend not to in recent years. Courtney, this really seems like it was the fall of Novak in a big way. He's a 22-match win streak going into Davis Cup and has been unbeaten since the U.S. Open. So what do you make of the autumn of, of Djokovic? Yeah, he's the fall guy, right? I mean, like the last two years, he's gone 37-1 and one after losing the U.S. Open final. That is a, a pretty remarkable, you know, kind of statistic. And I, and I think that what is what I really like about Novak, and it was a question that I had after the U.S. Open was whether or not now that it was at the time pretty much assured that Rafa was going to get number one and that Rafa was kind of player of the year and all these sorts of things and all the majors were done yeah, and that Novak was going to slip to number two, whether or not that was just a better situation for him. And, and maybe I've talked about on this podcast before, but I really do think that he's better as a predator than as, you know, the guy in the throne. I totally agree. I think he's much more naturally a hunter than a, uh, the guy has to fend off and try to stay on top. I think he's like, you know, we talked about him before when he came up on Take a Number. He's a bit of a uh, an outsider on the tour. And I think he needs a little bit of that chip on his shoulder to get fully amped. And you really saw that in his two matches against Nadal that he won both in straight sets in the fall. It just, you know, he had a little bit more edge to him that he'd been missing some of those previous big matches like the US Open final, Wimbledon final, etc. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like he plays better when he has something to prove mm-hmm. rather than just something to win. Mm-hmm. That when it's just about like, okay, a title, and no matter how big the title, yes, it's great, and yada yada, but there's just a different look in his eye when he's got that chip. And he really, really seemed like he had it throughout the fall. I mean, I saw him, the first time I saw him this fall was in Shanghai. And yeah, he had a, just a different way about him than he had had throughout the re- the first part i mean the rest of the year and yeah. then when i saw him again in london and, and in london in particular he there was just a different level of focus he just wasn't 
the jokey guy who wanted to just make you laugh. And, you know, and there's a part of me that wonders how much of that had to do with all the Choisky stuff and, yeah. you know, really feeling like, a, you know, a chip on top of a chip, you know, kind of feeling like, you know, his good friend was effectively being persecuted for no good reason sort of thing. And, and, and so he kind of had a defiant air about him and it really translated to his play on court. I was going to bring it up a little later, but do you want to go down the Choisky road now since we sure. sort of are here, the exit for it? We are. So let's talk about, uh, Novak's attitude towards the Troitsky stuff. I was with him in Paris. You were with him in London. In Paris, it was before the decision came out, and he was seeming very, very, very confident that everything would be cleared up, that Troitsky was definitely innocent. This would be all a big non-issue. And then his attitude, Courtney, when it turned out not to be the case, that Victor Troitsky did get his ban reduced, but only from 18 months to 12 months, which still is a very long ban. How would you describe Novak's approach and attitude towards the whole Troitsky situation in London? I believe he had, I was hearing like flashcards or something. <laughs> yeah, no, he definitely kind of let loose, engaged in a, a full monologue full of rhetorical questions and, you know, sub points and, and things like that. And And it was impassioned, you know, it wasn't like when he was doing it, it was kind of so earnest. He wasn't trying to grandstand. Um, that wasn't my sense at all. I mean, he just really, really feels like his friend has been wronged and that the system is messed up. Now, the problem with all of that and where, you know, especially once I kind of got the transcript and read his comments in black and white, when I started to kind of roll my eyes a little bit, is just, yeah, this over the top kind of idea that he and, and the rest of the, um, the Serbian tennis players, the guys have, that somehow Victor has been, that this is a great injustice, right? That this is an unfairness that is like, that can't even be, you know, put into words sort of thing. And, and I guess it just really felt like there was a lack of understanding as to the system. So he was kind of sitting there railing on the system, right? Like the system is, is I've lost all faith in it. You know, like this doping control officer can basically lie and be unprofessional and she gets to show up to work tomorrow, but Victor can't. Yeah. All these sorts of things. And I just was like, the whole time I'm just like, okay, you're talking about the doping control officer being unprofessional. How about how unprofessional Victor's been? Like, how about like seeing the situation objectively? And it just really felt like Novak kind of couldn't. And then yeah. aside from that, there were just basic... The funniest thing about all of it to me is that Victor got as good as he could have gotten on that appeal. He got the, minim the minimum punishment, right? He got the minimum punishment for the anti-doping violation that he committed. Now, the only way he could have gotten less is if the, the CAS found that he was of no fault, zero fault for the violation. Then he could have gotten like nothing. But what they found was that he bore no significant faults or no significant negligence. The difference is that word significant. Because of that, they give him the minimum, which is 12 months. So, which is which is, which is pretty harsh, I will say. That's a long... That's harsh, but out that's of, the Out rule. of his career. It's, it's the rule. But I do think it sort of speaks to... I just want to make this as a general point. People who think that like tennis is soft on doping or whatever. In the cases we know about, when people do get bans for these things, the bans are... I mean, that's so much longer than a ban you would get in, like, baseball or something. Oh, for, for an equivalent sure. situation. So I just for think sure. that, you know, tennis being soft on it, I think it's not entirely fair. And you could point to things like this. They're not soft. I don't think they're soft on the enforcement or the, no. or the punishment. They yeah. might be soft on the number of tests and whether or not they can catch everybody. But Right. And the investigative side of it. Exactly. So... I don't know. I just, I was just kind of bummed that the CAS thing came down during the World Tour Finals because it completely hijacked the first like four days of the tournament. 
really like did. you know because then it was just like every press conference you were just going in there to ask that player what they thought and here's what Novak said and what do you think and because we're talking about doping and it is kind of important to understand where everybody's position is on this and and as as big as Novak went on it yeah. You really did have to be like, do other people agree with that guy or like, you know, and well, you know. that's a question I got a bunch in the wake of Novak's comments was do Novak's comments change anything about doping in tennis? And will they affect change? And I was saying absolutely not. Like, well, no, I mean, there is one guy change. Is, well, the change in the Troitsky rule, like having a person come in. But I think that would have happened without Novak doing this uh, railing at the World Tour Finals. That was, I mean, people... Stuart Miller of the ITF had already discussed that that was in the pipeline before that. Correct. And that just seems like a common sense thing. I think, you know, just because Troitsky um, should have known the rules better doesn't mean that both sides can't learn something from this debacle. Sure. And in the future, I mean, talk about making an example out of someone. This is the ultimate case of that, I think, in this situation where people will know now what the consequences of, of saying, oh, I don't want to take a test today are if you could be naive about that before. And I think, you know, as, as the more recent Nuria Jacostera Vives case shows us, I mean, a lot of players aren't super up on the rules or at least have a, a little bit of just naivete on it. Yeah, I mean, you know, and that's not necessarily, I mean, I definitely kind of blame the players for that a little bit. And I, I know that I'm a hardliner on that. Mm -hmm. I know that on the whole, I'm pretty unforgiving across the board. I just don't really see how it's all that complicated with doping. But I do, I do think that there is some sort of cultural issue going on here. Because if you talk to any Eng player from any English-speaking country, there doesn't seem to be any ambiguity about these rules to them. To talk to a yeah. few, and you know, even what Andy Murray was saying, and Anne Kiothavong tweeted, like some of the British players, like they all get it. They understand what the responsibilities are. Yeah. Is is Isner was the same way when I talked to him in Paris. Isner was like, name like the three supplements he takes and everything's been clear with the doctors and trainers and stuff. And he didn't know anything about, you know, like out of competition versus in competition things. He was just always being super careful. And like you said, he would never walk into a pharmacy and get something over the counter or whatever, which yeah. is what happened at Chilich. Right. So although Chilich, I think is a lot more sympathetic than yes. Troitsky. To me, all of all three situations i think chillich is is kind of the one where i'm like oh that's brutal and but at the end of the day he got like the most reduced kind of more slap on the wrist really in the big scheme of things on a technicality yeah right on a technicality correct but yeah i mean i don't know i mean i'd, I'd be curious to hear kind of your thoughts on the general Troisky stuff ben because i know that i've had to write about it quite a bit over the last week but i don't think i've talked to you about it like i said i think it was a little bit more of a he said she said that i was comfortable with for getting this harsher penalty because we don't really know Everyone in the ruling said, oh, you know, you can't believe Victor and this woman seems to be more telling the truth. But again, that's, there's not a whole lot of independent verification of how forceful or how, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. You know, she might have said, too, in there. And then if you but if you do read the note that's in the CAS decision about what Victor wrote to Stuart Miller, it's yeah. so stupid. It's like, hi, Mr. Miller. I just wanted to tell you that I'm like not feeling super well. I'm sure it'll be fine. Thanks, Victor. Yeah. It's kind of sad and very fifth grader of him. But that also reminded me, these are people who a lot of them didn't finish high school in these situations. And I think things should be made a little bit more fail-proof for them. So I understand why Victor is being made an example of here, but I also am sympathetic to this sort of ignorance of the severity of the law argument, because I think the punishment in my opinion only some more of a softer than you want these things i think the punishment is way more than the offense he committed and i just really don't think he was doping it's part of it i don't think there's any intent whatsoever to evade the system on that front which is sort of what you have it's sort of a calculation you have to make in your mind 
on these things on how guilty or not guilty he is. Yeah. If there's any if there was any inkling that he was doing this for any nefarious purpose, I would feel very differently. But I just don't. But how do we? But how do we know? We don't know for sure. No, we don't know. But I'm just saying that's my that's my premonition. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I just thought it was interesting because Federer kind of said, you know, like he was like, I don't really care that he was allowed to give the te- or that he gave the test the next day. Like, you know, you can clear stuff out of your system the night before and da 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 da. Like he's like, I don't believe anything. I believe whatever the tribunal came down with, and that's what I go with. And obviously, that's not a really surprising response from Roger. I don't think, given his comments about anti-doping in the past. Yeah. But you know. I I mean, I think that I do kind of, and maybe this is why I'm such a hardliner. I think that it's because, you know, when I look back at all of those, like, you know, great sporting achievements or sporting moments where it just didn't even occur to me that that athlete might be taking anything performance enhancing and you found out later like that they totally were for like years and you're like oh man that you know the needle does swing the other way and so now I'm just like yep everybody's doping unless I unless proven otherwise and the only way to prove otherwise is if you take a test and it's clean and even then I don't necessarily know right so, yeah <laughs> it's a, you know it's a, the unfortunate cynicism that has been bred from being you know a sports fan in the modern era yeah, so that, that part of it definitely sucks and I think everyone's under the cloud of it really yep. until I mean just because of like an Armstrong situation where you can pass you know, hundreds of tests and still be doping the whole time. I mean, if players wanted to dope in tennis and get away with it, odds are they could. Yeah. And yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, that part's unfortunate. But like I said, I don't think that either Chilich or Choisky were trying to enhance the performance illicitly. It's just my sense. I don't know what to make of, of, of <laughs> Nuria. I really don't. What, what do you make of that one? We haven't talked about that one really at all. Um, what do I make of it? I I think the moral of the story from the Lagaster and Vivas case is don't go and spend the day in San Francisco and then come back and play tennis down in Palo Alto. Yeah. You think it, you, so you think it was just like residual meth in the air in San Francisco? Well, I don't really, I don't really remember how specific they got with respect to the quantities. And I don't know the science. I mean, can you, you know, if some meth user picks up your glass and then you drink out of that glass, is that enough? Could, could there be enough there to contaminate you to where you test positive i genuinely don't know so, so you, but, but your guess is that nuria was not you know on the pipe no that was her first tournament back no i agree with that from people injury were like, people were like haha this player did meth i was like no i really don't think she did she i felt bad positive for math i don't i think felt that... bad for her because like she has no idea how it happened it seemed like in the decision if you're believing her right. and like she couldn't even come up with an excuse like maybe if she did it would be like oh i was you know hanging out like he said in san francisco at some place and we were playing spin the bottle or something and there was some meth head there you know a right. pamela situation a pamela sitch but you know here's her getting two years and andre never got any time so nope. it's i mean it's it's bad luck for her i mean it's a career ender she's 33 she's done she was a double specialist anyway coming off of injury but yeah i mean i do think that it's interesting that like all of a sudden like all these players are getting popped yeah you know like this year well, there probably is more testing this year. They said they're going to ramp it up. I, we, they haven't released the data yet for 2013, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was in total a little more. I was sitting next to an AP reporter in London, and he was doing, you know, looking up all the stats on the number of tests in 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 competition, out of competition, blood, urine, whatever. Mm-hmm. And he like taps me on the shoulder, and he's like, "Is this right?" And I like look, and I'm like, "What?" He's like, "There's only 167, you know, out of competition tests." I was like, if that's what they're reporting, I don't know if that's right, but that's what's being reported. And he like scoffed. And I was like, what? And he's like, well, he normally covers cycling. He's French. Uh And he normally covers cycling and stuff. And I was like, well, how does that compare to cycling? He's like 10 to 1 minimum. Yeah. Well, cycling is also a 
I mean, I do buy the arguments on some of this, and we're probably going deeper on this than we need to, but yes, that, that cycling is a sport where doping is much more a make or break for your career success than in tennis, and yeah. that you could never have possibly won the Tour de France without doping, maybe even now still, but definitely for a, a solid decade. And in, is that the case in tennis? I, I don't know. Yeah, hard to say. Hard so, to know. Hard to know indeed. Back to Novak. We know about Novak, and we know that he won a lot of matches. What do you make? What is it? How does this set up 2014 for you on the men's side? Do you think with uh, Novak's big success and with Murray coming back and with Rafa having a great year, but really not a great finish to the year whatsoever? What? How do you see this all pitching forward? I'm more excited for the 2014 season now than I was two months ago. I would agree with that. So that's kind of how I feel about it. I think that every player needs to have a foil when that doesn't happen. When you have these long stretches of dominance, I think I've said this a gazillion times on this podcast, I personally get bored. And so kind of Novak finding his mojo again was was a, was really necessary for me in terms of teeing up the 2014 season, especially going into his most, most successful slam. And, you know, whatever happens at the Aussie Open does for a good amount of time kind of set the tone for the rest of the year. Yeah, and I do think it was also important or especially intriguing that his two wins over Rafa in the fall were pretty lopsided. Mm -hmm. Like those were, especially the London one was nowhere near as close as the score said it was. I mean, Novak was totally in control and Rafa really couldn't do anything in that match. And uh, he was having a bad day, obviously, but Novak was having a very not bad day. And yeah, I think that's more interesting than playing yet another epic long one that uh, Novak eked out in the end, like he did in the 2012 Australian open final. I think this is a, different sort of note to end on this sort of beat down yep yeah so you know i think as i wrote on si like i was just like you know it's almost like once the u.s open was over it was very tempting to sit down and write the post-mortem of the entire year and novak kind of put a halt to that and yeah you know he really did kind of change if you were to write the story of 2013 after the u.s open after all four slams had been completed you know in this kind of quote-unquote dead season that everybody claims doesn't matter if you wanted to sit there and you wanted to write the story of the season it would look very very different than if you were to sit and write it now or even i guess in a week after davis cup is done depending on what happens there so so good on him yeah no totally i think that people were talking about rafa having one of the best years ever or something and i don't think you can say that now with the way the fall went with uh, him not winning a title with him having lost three times to novak this year all in straight sets even though it was overall 3-3, I mean, getting drubbed pretty well three times. Yeah, I don't. I think if you're comparing, we can do this as a transition, I guess, comparing his year to Serena's, I think it was a pretty close argument after the U.S. Open and maybe even after Beijing or something. But going right now, I have to think that Serena's year stacks up much better just because of the late losses that Rafa racked up. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I mean, I think Serena, the, the difference, the major difference, is that at the end of the season... No one doubted that Serena was the number one player in the world by, like, a very far- large margin. Yeah. But I think that there is open debate as to right now who is the best tennis player in the world for the men. You know, and there's arguments to be made for both Rafa and Novak. So be- with that gap, you know, not being able to outpace the competition in the same way, I think, yeah, I'd have to I'd have to not, uh, give the nod to Serena as well. So let's use that as a segue into Serena, I guess. Serena Williams won her only two fall tournaments she played. She went to Beijing and won there and went to Istanbul and won there. She kind of stumbled over the finish line a little bit in Istanbul or staggered over the finish line, let's say, having some very odd rope performances in the semis and final against Yankovic and Lina. 
Courtney, what did you make of Serena's way she ended the year and just her, her year in general, I guess? I mean, I think the way that she ended her year was pretty much the story of her year, which was tremendous commitment, willingness to battle through, willingness to play the tournaments that maybe she didn't want to necessarily play, taking every match and treating it as a must-win match. Yeah. And that anything, any any failure to anyone was not an option. And, and I think that that's what got her the title in Istanbul. I think Lina was playing well enough to, to beat her if she had continued her, her kind of weak level in the, the, the final. I think Gankovic could have beaten her in the semifinal. Yep. So it's a credit to her mental fortitude that she was able to lift that title and, and her mental fortitude has really, you know, been the revelation of 2013. And her physical fortitude on some level, too, because yeah. she's played so many matches this year. I think she finished off with 82 matches, which is conveniently the same number you play in like an NBA or NHL season. And you don't see that too much women's tennis at the top for a top player to play that many tournaments and not lose early in any of them. I mean, that was what was surprising about Serena's year. I mean, she didn't have a single month this year without a tournament. She played, obviously, the Australia spring in January. She played Doha in February, Miami in March. April was Charleston. May was the European clay swing and into June. And July was Wimbledon, and, and then July was also Bostad. And, you know, she just didn't give herself, like, really a lot of time away from the tour. And I think that it'll be interesting to see if all the mileage she put on herself this year catches up to her at all beginning of next year. Because there was just a lot more than she's used to. Obviously, I think she goes into Australia as a huge favorite, but with the always there asterisk of you never know shit happens like exactly. that, the last two years. So I think, once again, if it's Serena versus the field, in 2014 in Australia, I would still take Serena, but I think if she's going to lose, it'll be in some sort of weird, fluky way. Right. I, it won't be a legit a legit beatdown. I don't think so. Could happen. Yeah. I mean, it could happen. I mean, someone like a Petra or a Lena or something could step up and just zone, but I, I kind of don't see it happening at this point. Yeah. And that's the big other big story. Is it's just whereas Rafa has a Novak on the men's side, really no one stepped up as a contender against Serena, and Vika stepped down. Yeah. I mean, her her fall was was how would how would you describe Vika's fall and what it means going forward? Gosh, I mean, Vika's year is just very confusing. Very confusing. <laughs> On the whole, right? Because it was a very weird thing to kind of have this player come in, you know, talking to the press in Istanbul and say, "I'm struggling with my motivation. I'm exhausted," and blah 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 blah. And meanwhile, you have a player who's what. 10 years older than she not 10 years but eight years older than she is gritting it out and played more matches i mean azarenka didn't play that much this year no she didn't she was injured for big stretches and she should have had a lot of rest exactly she was injured for big stretches she had a lot of rest and while i understand that like injuries can take their toll on you mentally i'm not saying that like she should be like bounding up and down but i could hear sharapova in the back of my head even though obviously she was not in istanbul but in the back of my head saying like we're all tired we're all struggling with motivation we're all i mean that's not so what that's just that's called being a tennis player at this point in the season so yeah i mean her fall was just she says that she she didn't she wasn't well prepared she didn't practice right way she probably needed a bigger break after the u.s open i don't i mean honestly ben i'll be honest i don't know what to make of it i think i have a lot of little scattered thoughts that i'm trying to kind of reconcile and i'm just kind of going to stutter through them if i keep talking so what do you think my thought on it was that the u.s open final really affected her quite a bit and i asked her about this in istanbul and she predictably said no that wasn't the reason but i think it kind of was i mean because she played such a not great u.s open really the whole time she was never at her best in new york i mean she nearly lost to ivanovich and wasn't very impressive in any stage of the tournament but then she took a set off serena it was in a third set and really went away and i think that was a tournament she set herself up to thinking she could actually win 
as to what had happened in Cincinnati. And she came pretty close within a set of winning that tournament. And for her to then really fold really affected her. It was the most down I've ever seen her after a loss in that situation there. And I think she was just over it the rest of the time. And I don't know if the offseason, hopefully the offseason will be enough to get her tank refills emotionally. Because I think this was more of an emotional letdown than a physical one. Because she just seemed over it in a way that she used to a lot early in her career. Before she had been a little bit more polished, but this was a lot of the old Vika in terms of attitude a little bit coming out, which reminds me of another thing that happened in Istanbul, which we haven't talked about on the show, obviously, since we haven't done a show. But what did you make of her match against Lina? It was Lina, right? Yeah, she, it was Lina. Where she pulled some sort of muscle or something pretty early in the first set, or midway through the first set, let's say, and was playing at about 10% of her abilities, yet soldiered on for another 45 minutes or so, much to the audible confusion of the crowd. Yeah, I mean, I for years since Azarenka has been has kind of ascended and and been a top five player number one you know multiple grand slam winner she's really kind of embraced this personality of of telling you like I don't care what other people think that's not how I approach my career I don't care there's just a lot of like I don't care what other people think in yeah. in the way that she answers questions in the way that she handles herself in press and and I get that and that's fine and that's totally cool it's an easy thing to tell people but it's an easy thing to sell to tell people but then to be in a situation where she effectively admits that she played on because she knows that she has this reputation for being soft and for retiring a lot more to the point yeah and for retiring a lot and so she soldiered on because of that. And that's where I kind of was like, no, 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 no. And her publicist, Benito, who is also the publicist for Rafael Nadal, was very, like, he was on tw- on Twitter kind of defending his client as a good publicist would. He does it a lot. He does it very vociferously quite often. With he both, does. With both her and Nadal more than most, I will say. That, that bears pointing out. Yeah, very publicly, you know, was very like, you know, it's a lose-lose situation for her. If she plays on, you guys rip on her. If she retires, you rip on her. And my response is kind of like, well, it just is what it is. She shouldn't be concerned about it. She knows what's going on with her body. And if she's not physically able to compete at her best, then she should retire. But, you know, there have been times in the past where that has clearly not been the case and the retirements or the medical timeouts have come due to, yes, a a, a place of softness yeah, and not a place of like, I'm trying to soldier through. And so, and that's just, you know, your history follows you, you know? Her instincts on this whole sort of component <laughs> yeah. of playing the game are remarkably bad. I mean, and it's at a certain point, it's such a, it's such a long dossier we have on her and her injuries and how she addresses her injuries mid-match and pre-match and whatever, that it's almost seems a bit not her fault at this point. Like, she really has very rarely gotten it right ever. I mean, I think she got it right, let's say, in... I think Indian Wells in Miami this year, when she pulled that, was trying to fight through it, but pulled out. I think that was fine. Even if it was a late pullout in Miami, I personally didn't discredit her for that at all. I think you want to see if it's good until the last moment. You try, you couldn't. Oh, well. This one... There was a, a reporter there who was saying before, as we walked into that press conference, like, I hope she doesn't say she did this for the fans because the fans hated that. That was a terrible thing to do to the fans. <laughs> Make yeah. them watch her play this match terribly. Right. She sat down and was like, I did it for the fans. That's one of her excuses. And it's like... Right. Out, of respect, out of respect to my opponent and the fans. You it know? wasn't respectful. It was really bad and not enjoyable to watch. And I don't know. I mean, I think she just needs uh, to... I think it's like a stanza method on some level. It's just... Think what you think is the right way to do things and just do the opposite and see what happens. And it might work out well for her on the injury front. It might. It might. I mean, I think she has this 
mentality that when she is physically suffering, how do I put this delicately? When she feels like she is suffering, she kind of has this like warrior mentality. Yeah. Like I'm going to battle. Like a lot look of players at me. Yeah. 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 Look at me. Look at me fighting through this. Look at me battling. And this is a show of character and shows how respectful I am. And it's like, no, actually, that's not what that's showing at all. <laughs> not in this case, anyway. Not in this case, you know? And so, I mean, I totally agree that it was she was between a rock and a hard place. And no matter what decision she made, the retirement history was going to come up yeah. one way or the other. But, you know, I think that one of the toughest things for me to kind of reconcile was hearing her very openly kind of say, you know, she's struggling with her motivation and things like that. And I thought it was really honest. And I applaud her for her honesty. And, you know, I think that what she said wasn't surprising anyone. But I think that there was, especially just in the context of what this year is for the WTA and 40 love and 40 years since the WTA was started and Billie Jean King and Battle of the Sexes and equal prize money. I'm like, it's not going to look good for you to say that you're trouble motivating for a tournament that is like the biggest tournament outside of the slams and has a $6.5 million prize money purse. Yeah. It's like kind of you like, you know, like I get it and I'm totally, I know where you're at, but you <laughs> in, in some ways though, I feel like it's, a, it's, that is a, we've come a long way, baby. Exactly. Kind of thing, right. You have, yeah. <laughs> you have a player who was so over, you know, this, this opportunity and that's taking it for granted is in a, not what the preferred way to market be <laughs> how far we've come, but you know, in its own way, it's a very first world problem sort of approach. To right, it's choice. Tennis. Yeah, so. Right, it's like, it's like yeah. it's kind of being in a situation where, like, you are a trust fund kid, right? It's like, I'm going to, you know, I don't want to go work for the investment bank, and I don't want to go to Harvard, and I don't want to go do these things. I want to go, like, work at this commune, and da-da-da-da-da. Or work live, at, like, a coffee shop or something. Right, and live, yeah. like, easily, you know, and it's like, well you know what, you have that choice. Yeah. And it sounds kind of spoiled and pomp, but that's a choice you have. And yeah. So what do you think 2014 holds for Miss Azarenka? I have no idea. I have no idea. I mean, I think she'll be fine. I mean, she doesn't, she's not a player that's going to drop out of the top five. Like she's not, she's so that. solid. It's that... possible that like a Lena could pass her for number two. You could see that yeah. happening. But other than that, no, I don't really see much threat to her in terms of if she gets back on her horse at all. She's just been very, very reliable at getting results and not losing matches she shouldn't before this fall. So yeah. if, that, if that resumes, it'll be business as usual, I think. Maybe the distance between her and Serena is not as close as it once was, but she steps up for those matches in a big way. So She does. She does. So both of us went to a few places we haven't been before on this fall swing since we last talked to you. We'll start with you, Courtney, because you were on the plane first heading west from your home across the international dateline to china how was it covering a tournament and i guess being in china for the first time and i know you came back with a uh, a little friend which i think is pretty awesome oh my little friend uh my little mini me yeah no i mean it was really cool i mean it was about what i would expect i mean i've obviously never been this is my first time to mainland china which obviously means that it was my first time seeing a tennis tournament in china mm -hmm. and i i do want to go to beijing at some point because from everyone that I've talked to, they all say that it's like being in an alien world. And I'm just really curious about that. But in Shanghai, it's a little bit less alien. It's basically kind of like a Hong Kong, except people don't really speak English. So, yeah. you know, the biggest, toughest part of, of being there is really the language difficulty. Because what you really do take for granted is the idea that just because I know that I'm staying at like the Hilton Shanghai on like Washon Road, 
when I say that to somebody, they have no idea what I'm saying because yeah. it's like not really phonetic. Like, and so if I show, if I write it down, like they don't know what I'm saying because or have written because it's in English characters. I can't help them with the Chinese characters or whatever. So it makes it for a really, really tough place, I think, for event planning where you need to kind of host the West. But to the tournament's credit, and I think, you know, like before going to the tournament, and this is why, like, obviously, I am a big supporter of people going to as many tournaments as possible because you just don't know what the whole vibe is unless you're there yeah but for so long shanghai got really 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 high marks from the players for being like one of their favorite tournaments and i never really understood why but the organization has done like a tremendous job of like making it breaking down effectively those language barriers those culture barriers to make life like really easy for the players so like you know, there's like Wi-Fi has been installed in the cars so that they can like be on their phones, you know, and access Twitter and Facebook, like on the one hour drive from um, the city center to the tournament. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, you know, just little things like that. They just, you know, a lot of they have their own player app, which I think is going to be something you'll see expanded at like tournaments like Indian Wells or a Wimbledon or the US Open. It would be great if they would invest in this. But basically, there was kind of an understanding from the organizers that the site is so far from the hotel that if you had this app that allowed them to like book all of their stuff, they like practice eat, courts and stuff, yeah. practice courts, practice partners, you know, all these, you know, go back and forth with like the player services desk about travel things and whatever that would actually help the players so that they can optimize their time, which is really smart, you know, and, and I think really made the players feel special. So yeah, so it was a really interesting experience. I mean, I think that in terms of an event in China, it's very similar to kind of how Istanbul is, okay. which is like utter chaos. Like so many people are working at the tournament, like volunteering or like whatever. And you don't have any idea what any of them are doing. Yeah. And you don't even know if they know what they're doing and no one's really helpful. And so it's just really tough. I mean, it's tough. Istanbul is definitely that way. I haven't been to Istanbul. We'll get to Istanbul a little bit later. But yeah. Istanbul, there's always like, at least in a lot of situations, like there's always like four people doing what should be the job of one. And you can't figure out why. And none of them seem to know what they're doing there. It's but they're all, they're all they're all trying sort of. But they just they're not the right people for that job necessarily. But they thought maybe they would make make up for the lack of quality with quantity. I don't know. It's 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 odd. It's odd. And and there isn't just this idea this idea of it just has to get done. Like, yeah. you know, like you ask somebody to do something, like they just are supposed to go do it. I shouldn't have to hound you. I shouldn't have to, you know, be on you to, to get something done or like whatever. And there isn't this sense of like immediacy to requests sometimes. So it's very odd. But so I give a lot of credit to kind of the Shanghai organizers because that cannot be easy to yeah. stage that size of an event there. So from Shanghai, while you were, I guess while you were still there, I was in Sweden, which was interesting. It's a very small tournament. It's a 250 indoors. And culturally, I mean, Swedish people like speak better English than I do. <laughs> they're, they're very on top of their things it was very like small I, I wrote a story about it but it had a little bit of like almost i don't know if this is fair but like almost a little bit of like a ghost town feel to it like it used to be a big thing but now it's clearly not the stadium is bigger than it looks on, or smaller than it looks on tv actually but still sees like five thousand people i mean all this wooden benches and stuff and you see the names on the wall they used to play there of like Borg, McEnroe, Connors, Arthur Ashe, Becker, Federer, whatever. And now it's like headlined by David Ferrer. And Grigor Dimitrov won it. Side note, 
it was interesting. When Dimitrov actually won the tournament, we were both in Istanbul. And what the ATP did for Dimitrov winning, I've never seen them do for any other player winning before a tournament. At least not to me. Was that they made him available for a conference call. Yep. What, Courtney, what, what do you make of the ATP's marketing of Grigor Dimitrov? And does it show that maybe there's less of a double standard out there than we think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I see where you're coming from on that end. I do think that... Because this is a guy who won a 250 that wasn't a big 250, and it's still outside the top 20. It but gets really... media requests. Apparently. I mean, yeah. he does. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, like he at tournaments, I know, I mean, I've, I'm, I remember maybe it was Rome, I think earlier this year where it was actually not easy to get time with him. And you're talking about a guy at time who's like outside top 40, maybe, you know, and you're and you we, we ended up having to do like a round table, you know, with him and stuff. So he's he gets a lot of pop, you know, interview requests. It helps that he's obviously, you know, fluent in English and, uh, you know, young and charismatic and yeah. dating Maria and all these sorts of things and mm-hmm. is a cute, good looking dude, you know. But I thought I mean, I thought that it was great. I mean, I definitely kind of told ATP, like, I hope you guys do it with more. Like, you should do this. Yeah. This like, is you know, like, do. this is a good thing to kind of offer at all your tournaments, not just when it's Grigor, when it's anybody yeah. else. Joel you know? Souza I mean, won a tournament. And yeah. We didn't get to talk to him. Yeah, yeah exactly. I don't if know he, if he speaks English, but, you know. Exactly. If they speak English and you think that it would work, like, it would, it's great. I mean, I've done, you know, when I um, spoke to Simona Hollow after she won the Tournament of Champions, that was via phone. And that was, you know, it was helpful. Because it was a person that I want to talk to. I just can't be in two places at one time. Yeah. You know, so. So Sweden was nice. And then we went to Switzerland, mm-hmm. which was pretty awesome. I mean, you it can was. you can look at our photos for that. I think the photos describe it better than we could. But Switzerland is a cool place. You have the chance and the time. And you're in Europe. Try Switzerland. You'll like it. That's all I'm saying. Exactly. So. Switzerland's great. There's nothing not to like. Make sure to get, be sure to get raclette and fondue. Those are the two things. Yes. Melt the cheese anytime, anywhere. Melted cheese will be your friend. They do melted cheese really well. Remarkably well. And they, they, they just embrace it, you know? That's a good point. I feel like we don't have anything in the U.S. except for maybe like a grilled cheese sandwich. Or I guess pizza is a little bit melted cheesy, but... Mozzarella you know. sticks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, answer to that. So from Switzerland, we took Pegasus Airlines to uh, Istanbul. There was a kid who got up and started dancing as soon as the plane hit the ground. <laughs> <laughs> which I still envision, envision every time I was on a plane after that, this kid like getting up and uh, I can't really describe it. Literally as the wheels touch the ground. So obviously we're still going really fast. Yeah. And the seatbelt sign is not off. And it was, I think, so jarring because we had spent a week in Switzerland where there are, everything is orderly and there are rules and you know, like it's Switzerland. And then we take our one flight from Basel to Istanbul and it's absolute sheer chaos from the minute we get in line to board the plane until we leave Istanbul. (laughs) But yeah, this kid, like right when the plane hit the ground, like gets up and starts like dancing on his chair. Like it was so good. I was like, oh my God. We are not in Switzerland anymore. No, we are not. So yeah, Courtney, what did you, what did you make of the third and final year of the WTA championships in Istanbul and I guess the legacy that Istanbul will leave behind yeah I mean I think my running kind of joke throughout the week was I'm not I can't say that I'm going to miss you Istanbul but I am gonna kind of miss you so it's, it's been a really you know I think it was a great spot I think from a branding perspective in terms of how important this is, I guess, my sense anyway how important fans see the WTA championships I think that it feels more important now than it did three years ago. I would agree with that. And that is, I think, really a credit to the fans in Istanbul. 
and the staging of the event and that it made it look like a women's version of London. Yeah. You know, and proved that, you know, yes, 16,000 people plus will come and watch a women's only event. So that was all really great. I think the behind the scenes stuff of just like I could tell like how difficult it was for WTA to put the event on there you know a lot of just kind of culture clash and things like that that got a little just... and it was a little bit tougher this year i think than last year also yeah. there was a sense at least that we got and obviously a lot of the people there were great and were doing their best but just seemed like there was a little bit less of a desire to i don't know impress, impress. than there was last year when they were still bidding for the olympics for example and they still had another year of this tournament coming up this was a little bit and there were parts of it like i said that were very strong but other parts where they just seemed a little bit over it the parties were strong oh yeah the the band at the first party at the draw ceremony party with their backup dancers was amazing people are well aware of what happened at that party thanks to my instagram yeah. <laughs> account which you're welcome to check out if you want to see yeah please do please do please do but yeah no i mean i think that for all of those reasons it's it was it was strong it was a good three years to have it there you know but i can't think of a country that would be the more opposite style than singapore switzerland switzerland comes close but switzerland's yeah. close switzerland's close but so so that'll be interesting you know i think that singapore probably doesn't have as much of kind of the culture and the excitement and energy that yeah. istanbul has and i and i think that one of the things that is obviously Istanbul set the bar on is the crowds and if you can't bring the crowds now every event's going to feel like a failure yeah. <laughs> you know thanks to istanbul whereas like before it was like oh it's another wta championships where it's only half full that's this a is bad just, look. It was a that, bad look in Doha. It, really it was a was. horrible look in Doha. I think it was a joke. I mean, I understand why it was there in Doha and the money that they got has been put to good use. But I mean, I didn't even take the event seriously when it was in Doha. No. You know, so. so. Singapore will be interesting. We met some of the Singapore people there. They brought their own mixologist to Istanbul to like give us food and drink there, which was a nice effort. And yeah, we'll see. I enjoyed I, it. I mean, that was, it was a nice treat at 1130 a.m. It really have, was. I have a mixologist there at the hotel. We'll see. It'll be a harder place to get to for press from the U.S., definitely. But it does it, allow you to do a full Asian swing. It does let you really commit to Asia, yeah. So if you really wanted to. You could really do the whole Tokyo, Beijing, and then hop over to Shanghai and do the guys. It'll be interesting to see if ATP goes back that route at any point. I know that Bursi has talked about wanting to move to February, possibly. Mm. And if the guys want to do the same thing, like put the World Tour Finals in a Beijing or in, I don't know, Seoul or something, and do the whole dedicated to Asia thing. They haven't really before. We'll see. Yeah. I think they're pretty happy in London, too. I think they are. I think they are. And I, I mean, I, it, there's a big part of me that, that thinks that I could not imagine the ATP World Tour Finals anywhere but London and that it would never be staged as well as London does it. But that's not to say there aren't other reasons why it shouldn't be in London. Yeah, I think it needs to move at some point. I think having it fixed is not ideal. And just I think more markets, and this is not a capitalist whatever answer, but I think more markets sort of would enjoy it and would do a decent job at it. Even if it's not quite the perfection that London is, I think that, you know, you can bring it somewhere where it'll be good for that place and nice for the tour to have a little bit more of a complete global reach. Because you're just preaching to the choir in London. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. But oh, what a uproarious choir they are. I mean, they love it. And one of the arguments that people have put forth with respect to how the championships shouldn't be in London is like, because obviously they already have Wimbledon, but as a lot of my British friends have brought up, they're like, but we can't actually go to Wimbledon. Like it's really hard to get tickets, but the center court. Yeah. No, at uh, any of it, they're all, it's, it's really hard for them. Yeah. You have to queue and stuff. Yeah, that's true. 
Right, exactly. You'd have to queue and give up your entire day to do that and stuff. And so they were just like, you know, like at least with the 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 O2, like we can just log on to Ticketmaster, we can buy tickets, and there you go. Because even yeah. people who want to buy tickets, like you have to for Wimbledon, you have to go through the whole ballot system, which is random, and it's not like you can buy like five tickets. Like you might only get like two, you know, those sort of things. So you know, having that, or you can be an aristocrat or something. Exactly, you can be a Devon uh, a Devonshire holder. But yeah, but the O2 is actually much more open and provides uh, gives more opportunity for a market that is clearly wants it yeah. demanding it so so that was good i guess chronologically i think we should talk about paris briefly which i was at also mm-hmm. i'd never been to Bercy before and i hadn't been to the french i haven't been to the french open either so i can't compare the crowds quite as well but it was nicer than i expected in terms of like the atmosphere inside and it helped obviously that the draw really held up very well that the top eight guys all made the quarters and that Djokovic was in the final and that federer and nadal both in the semis i mean so that the matches were pretty relevant on that front the whole time but it felt very low stakes at the same time also because london's right around the corner and it's not a major and whatever else but the crowds were really good they got great attendance the whole week the support for the French guys was huge. I mean, you really see like an entire stadium like slow clapping for Lodra. And you're just like, this would not happen in the U.S. <laughs> John Isner can tell you that. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's just the kind of uh, dedication they had to that. It made me think that Paris also, if the two places wanted to flip-flop events and have London get a Masters and have Paris get the World Tour Finals, that would work also. And that would totally be a, a good place to do that. And may I say, for behind-the-scenes part, Paris, on the food front, that tournament was amazing. They gave you 50 euros every single day on your credential for food. 50 euros. That's like $70 or something. Yep. It was unbelievable and the food was really good and they had cheap and expensive options some people would like save up their credential and just buy like a few bottles of wine at the end of the day because that's have awesome. available too i mean you, you would you would really really enjoy the food courtney i recommend it to you solely on that front yeah i know because everybody was telling me like don't go to Bercy; it's an absolute hole like people were really ripping on it like now there press. are there are whole elements of it there are <laughs> Which is such a contrast because it's like there's some really strong, like really highbrow things. Like you get this, you know, seventy dollars a day thing, and you get like steak and whatever else for your meals. But then also there's like toilets without toilet seats. You know, there's some weird things there. So if you if you can balance the good and the bad, which is I guess kind of a crash course to enjoying France in general, then you which I am unable to do. Yeah, it's not your place. I understand that, but but I think it, it worked out well for me. So I would definitely. But it's a hard, it was a hard tournament to get anyone caring about at the same time. Like, I got the sense that nobody backstate side, and part of it was, it was a World Series, but nobody really cared about Bercy, and it's t- it's that's never going to change. Yeah, that's the thing. If you couldn't care about it this year, when are you ever going to care about it? Because, right. yeah, as you said, the draw held up, and the matches were really good, you know? But I was watching from Rome, but... Um, but it's your yeah. job. I know. Yeah. And then you went to Rome. How was Rome? Rome is awesome. Rome is amazing. I love it. I'm definitely, I really, really I'm definitely do. gonna try to go there next year, if only for that pasta photo of you like staring at pasta. Yes, we have to go to that place. It was so good, and I had heard like mixed reviews about it before because I know that it's the place that all the players go to, and it happens to be in the same neighborhood as the hostel that I stay at every year. So I was like kind of back and forth, but I went with Matt Cronin of Tennis Reporters and Angelica Frutini, who writes for OK Tennis, which is an Italian website, and we had just an amazing meal. It was still warm enough in Rome that you could dine outside, so we were sitting outside, you know, in this very kind of secluded, I don't know, vine 
like there were like green trellis things around us and stuff. Just sat there for like hours, just talking and and eating and just a, an incredible amount of food kept coming nice. out. So that was quite pretty good. And it was a nice, obviously, because I don't really do very well with the food in Istanbul. So it uh, was a nice kind of recovery for me yeah. to be able to to kind of just eat my face off, especially before going to London. And London, the tournament was good? Yeah, the tournament was good. The tournament is, I mean, it's kind of the thing that, that kind of goes back to our discussion about um, whether or not it should move or not. Like, the London tournament's great, but it is the same every year. Yeah. There isn't sort of, a, they, they figured it out. They know what Yeah, they figured it out. And there's nothing new to it. And it's very, it's run very well. I mean, like, the media dining is pretty tasty. This is good food in Britain you're talking about. So that's an accomplishment. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Yeah, exactly. It was tasty. The soup? impeccable doug robson and i pretty much lived on soup the entire week we couldn't stop talking about it people thought we were weird (laughs) we're like have you had the soup the soup's really good today (laughs) we were just a little shocked sometimes when we actually ate something that was tasty but yeah no so the food was good the media lounge area is nice the press center is good but it does feel like groundhog's day every year it just it's the same players it's there's nothing really new happening there are very few storylines and so it's a bit tough yeah so you were talking about like the same being the same players, and that was sort of my sense in these tournaments too, especially in Paris. I mean, it's the end of the year. I've already probably been in, not to exaggerate, but this is probably like I'm guessing roughly like my twentieth press conference with Djokovic or something of the year. Do you feel like at a certain point the tennis writing wise just sort of you run out of stories and characters, doing it a little bit as granularly as we do? Yeah, I think so. I think that it's it's difficult because. Yeah, when you talk to players, the same players all the time, and you want to ask them like a new question, but it's not necessarily a question you want to ask in general press. And so you wait until you you can get, you know, kind of individual access to get, you know, some sort of thoughts. But it's it is tough. You know, I mean, I think that that's why a lot of times you get that super awkward pause at the beginning of major press conferences, because those people who actually cover tennis on the beat, a beat style don't necessarily want to raise your hand and be like so what's your read on that match because we don't really care about that match like you know what I mean like we want to talk about bigger issues and so but you know it has been a long year and and certain players you know I definitely yeah Djokovic is one I think Nadal is another one where I feel like I've been in a lot and Serena and Maria yeah those are like players that I just feel like wow I've seen you a lot in press and I'm kind of stumped at this point (laughs) that's probably fair one player who was in Istanbul who we hadn't talked to in a while was Sloane Stevens and Courtney why don't you why don't you share what how that went I guess yeah. Well, Sloan was in, in Istanbul as an alternate. So, you know, it was, it was, I mean, in years past, I think you've done interviews with alternates, right, Ben? Yeah, I've, I've talked to Petkovic, I think the year that she was an alternate. And if, in a, maybe I, I maybe had like a very brief chat with like Mario Bartoli when she was an alternate. Yeah, you know, I mean, they're there, their entire responsibility is to just be warmed up until for the first match and be there until this last match starts and oftentimes that just means they're on their phone and things like that so Hanging there was a the lounge yeah just exactly so time. there was a, a relatively strong american presence um in the writing room yeah and so i think un, i think at the beginning of the week probably unbeknownst to the rest of us like we all had kind of submitted you know a request to, to speak with sloan but at the end of the day like nobody was able to get time with her and uh, you know it was just kind of i think disappointing just simply because I don't think any of us has spoken with her since the U.S. Open. No, 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 none of us have been in the tournament she'd been at. I mean, none of the American reporters 
were in Beijing, I don't think. No one was in Linz or Luxembourg with her. So, yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of a, a, a bit of an awkward end to what has been a rather dramatic season for Sloane Stevens, I think. And one, and one worth writing about and talking about, you know, yeah. I mean, just solely from a positive point of view, she went from 38 to number 11 this year and was at the WTA championships, albeit as an alternate, but still it's a huge accomplishment for someone who really was not expected to make those sort of leaps so fast and who made the second week at all four grand slams and stuff. I mean, so it was a little disappointing. We'll see. Well, I'm just interested to see where it leads to for next year. And with a lot of the young players, you know, how these players, as they continue to become more and more relevant in the game, how they approach the media side of it, or if they just feel like they don't need to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this was maybe a topic that came up with respect to some of the Azarenka stuff that had happened in Istanbul as well, where, you know, there are moments where you wonder if the players care about the fact that, you know, back when this tour first started, that they had, you know, Billie Jean King had to beg people to come cover tournaments. You know, they had yeah. to beg for the exposure. And again, this goes towards the whole, like, we've come a long way, baby. Now they can say no. They can, like, kind of, you know, craft their image the way that they'd like to. And that's great. But I think that, you know, what I think becomes a little bit frustrating is that it just creates this weird tension, potential tension, you know, in terms of, like, I don't know. Like, yeah, how they handle the media side. You know, like, for example, like a Laura Robson in Britain. How does she handle her interactions with British media? Like, is it positive? Is it negative? I don't know, because I'm not British media, so I don't know. And, you know, in terms of, you know, I think that right now where things are with, with Sloan and American media, it's probably a little bit more arm's length because of all the media issues that she experienced this year. And, you know, and then you have, like, other young players with other kind of kind of traveling entourages and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, this is my first time of ever kind of experiencing or from the inside watching like a young player, the decisions that they make and how they manage it. So it, it's definitely 2014 will be interesting. And it's interesting. There's this other sort of school of thought, which was under some debate at the U S open with, uh, with a men's player. who I don't think really bears naming necessarily in this, but <laughs> yeah. who was unbelievably terrible in press and a young someone who's seen as like a young up and coming player. And people were talking about, oh, you know, he's really hurting himself if he doesn't, you know, put himself out there and try to be more personable or whatever. But then there was a contrarian point of view that was like, you know, I bet he thinks that, you know, if he wins and is a top five player or whatever, when wins Grand Slams or whatnot, he'll have a wonderfully lucrative career regardless of what is written about him or how interesting those pieces are. And then there is some, you know, that is not entirely incorrect, but it's interesting uh, where people place their, their chips in their career. Yeah, because I don't, I, when, I'd never heard that theory before. And then I thought about it. I was like, there is some truth to that. If you're going to be a top five player your entire life or most of your career, then you're always going to be relevant just because of what you do between the lines. Like, you, you know, you don't need people to like, and people will always always want to tell your story and you can control therefore how you tell your story and who you tell it to but yeah i mean it is it is an interesting thing to kind of think about like because to like the players not think about well what happens when you're not playing well yeah i mean you can, you can contrast <laughs> sort of the profile to use two very opposite extremes on this front of like a pekovich who's obviously ridiculously good and outgoing with the press and forthcoming and giving and whatnot to like a ferrer who <laughs> really it's very minimalist, let's say, with what his answers in press and stuff. And in intentionally, I think it's fair to say is intentionally not interesting a lot of times. Just tries to downplay everything and not cause a stir and just very, mm -hmm. very low and not the most accommodating person in press always. 
and I guess in terms of like the articles written about them or stuff, I mean, Ferrer and his results will have more significantly as long as he keeps winning. But Pekovic is punching above her weight mm-hmm. in terms of ranking and popularity and whatnot, and Ferrer is below, but on some level it balances out, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it all goes to kind of, yeah, I mean, it goes down to choice and it goes down to, I think Sharapova said this when she was talking about, she gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal months ago where she was talking about like why she's the most highest paid athlete and how that compares and why, you know, compared to other other players like Serena. Specifically Serena. So yeah. Specifically Serena. But she did say, you know, I mean, I, at this point, if you win, like tennis is the reason why we have everything. If you win, if you do well, then you make money and think, and hopefully you make a, a bunch of money that you have the luxury to not have to do everything that's requested of you and to be able to control. And if you choose not to, then you choose not to. Now, is that an accurate assessment of why she's the highest paid athlete compared to Serena? Probably not. No, not in, the, not in that particular head-to-head, no. No, not in that head-to-head, but there is a truth to it at the same time. I mean, the, Maria is very giving when it comes to like her sponsor time. Like she knows who cuts her checks and she goes out of her way to like accommodate them. But that's not the, I mean, that isn't even 20% of the explanation of why that whole differential exists. Yeah. But yeah, but I mean, the, the, the ultimate point still stands. It's that it's, it's still, still a choice. And so long as you choose, if you choose to say no, you say no and that's all right. Yep. And you reap the benefits or you reap what you sow on some level on that, I guess. Media-wise yeah. sometimes. Yep. That's true. Sharapova doing the Sochi Olympics. That's pretty funny. And it's very fun. I, I hope, I just hope at some point she gets put on a panel with Johnny Ware, who's also <laughs> working for them. That's all I want. Carrillo, Ware, Sharapova. One panel. Go. I'm down with that. I'm down with that. Right? Yeah, that would be amazing. So. As always, you can keep up with the show by following us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. And also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us reviews there. And those are much appreciated things. So that's it for this week's show. We're very glad to get to talk to all of you again. We didn't have time for questions this episode. We'll do a lot of them next week and for the whole offseason. We appreciate your questions, which will keep us going through the rather barren winter times of tennis. But we will be here, hopefully, for you back on a weekly basis in full bloom as ourselves. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Sometimes it's hard to find the words to say. I'll go ahead and say them anyway. Forget your balls and grow a pair of tits. It's hard, it's hard, it's hard out here for a bitch.